You're listening to the ILLA podcast, the online home of lectures and conversations hosted by the Institute for International Law and the Humanities at the Melbourne Law School. My name is Andre Dow. I'm a PhD student at the Institute for International Law and the Humanities. I'm here with the director of the Institute, Professor Sandhya Bahuja, and we're very pleased to be joined today by Mac Darrow, who is the representative of the Office of the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights in Washington, D.C., responsible for that officer's policy engagement with international financial institutions. He was previously chief of OHCHR's Sustainable Development Goals section and has also served as secretary to the UN Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination. He has been an adjunct professor at the American University, a visiting fellow at the Law School of the University of New South Wales, and a senior fellow in residence at the Graduate Institute of International and Development Studies in Geneva. Welcome, Mac. Thanks very much, Andre. Pleasure to be with you. Um, yeah, it's um, really exciting to, um, to be able to speak to you today. Um, I thought to kick things off, I'd just ask you if you could tell us um, a little bit um, about your current role. Sure, thanks. Thanks very much. And um, before um, before getting into those comments, I just want to make clear that, of course, my comments uh, tonight are very much uh, personal comments and don't necessarily reflect the views of the UN. My, my role um, in DC, where I've been since 2016, um, is to serve as the focal point for our office's engagements with uh, the international financial institutions. That's principally the, the World Bank Group, um, as well as the IMF. Uh, and the role also includes um, coordinating our engagement with development financing institutions globally. So multilateral development banks, and bilateral development banks as well in various countries, a particular focus on the Asian Development Bank and Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank just at the moment, but the menu varies. Uh, added to that is a component of outreach. So being located in DC, um, I also help out when it comes to uh, facilitating investments from the office and from experts from the Human Rights Council, for example, um, with the uh, US government and, uh, and Congress as well and uh, servicing information needs of uh, members of Congress, you know, other things that, uh, that advance the UN human rights goals. The one thing we don't have here is a monitoring mandate um, of uh, this country of the US or any other country in the region uh, that uh, is not uh, explicitly part of the mandate uh, of, uh, of the office where I am. That, that's it in a nutshell. Mm. And and so just as a, um, I guess as more of a practical question, I was wondering what um, what your engagement um, with those IFIs looks like, um, kind of on a day to day level. You know, are you um, are regularly meeting um, with those institutions, um, or, or what what form does that engagement take? Yeah, um, good question, and um, we put a lot of thought into that from the year 2016 for a few intensive months of strategizing and basically the, the form of engagement has uh, changed dramatically of course since the onset of COVID um, where previously uh, the day-to-day -day role did involve uh, an enormous amount of uh, in-person uh, contacts with uh, principally staff of the the World Bank, different parts of the World Bank group, the public sector and private sector financing sides with the Inter-American Development Bank and their accountability mechanisms um, in order to 
support for various purposes to advance policy goals, for example, to provide inputs to key policy processes within the banks that affect human rights, um, and notably among the various priorities, the helping to strengthen the social environmental safeguard policies of the banks insofar as investment lending is concerned. So do they, do they view mm -hmm. you as an irritant, Mac? <laughs> um, yeah, uh, good question. Uh, some, uh, some, in some contexts, uh, most definitely. Um, and in other contexts, it's more of a partnership orientation where not just myself, but our office is, uh, is leaned on for expertise. And an example of that might be in relation to efforts in the different banks to reprisals policies. I think it's sort of the UN Human Rights Office is, uh, you know, I think appropriately regarded as having some expertise to offer there and also advise on how, you know, the banks can assess context risk a little bit better. But um, in other times, it is, uh, it's a less sort of uh, chummy relationship. Um, and uh, I suppose the social and environmental safeguard policies might be an example of that, where we're often coming in with arguments that are not welcome, um, but nevertheless, we think are important and uh, need to push. And uh, when we're called upon for advice by, um, you know, from outside the bank, like from board level, executive board level, um, or where member states, UN member states and shareholders of the bank ask for our views, um, that of course can put us in an adversarial relationship where the, our advice might not align directly with those of our partners in institutions. So yeah, it's a complicated relationship depending on the issue, um, context and bank. So that's, I mean, one of the things I often find um, with students is that they often think of the UN as having a kind of single position with respect to particular mm. global issues. And my own work has been directed toward thinking about the differences between the institutions and in particular their differential relationship to global south versus global north or particular kinds of economic ideology. But you, your position probably places you almost uniquely to notice the differences between the UN, let's call it, and the Bretton Woods institutions up close. Can you um, elaborate on the things that you were saying and just share some observations about that in particular for students to reflect upon who, who may think of these institutions in a re relatively monolithic way? Right, yes. No, it's definitely your observation um, is, is, of course, correct. Um, and I, I know you've researched these questions in great depth. Um, um, but uh, the, uh, the, the mandates of the organisations within the UN organisation as a whole do differ considerably. Their, their sort of their oversight structures, their incentive structures also differ considerably. So the UN Human Rights Office um, is, uh, is operated in a sometimes uncomfortable way within the UN Secretariat as a whole. So we are part of the UN Secretariat, um, not a specialised agency with that added element of intense details. Yet the High Commissioner himself or herself is established by, as an independent office holder, by, by the UN General Assembly and is operated pretty independently as the sort of the leading voice on human rights within the UN system. As the 
mandate and activities and work program of the office has sort of expanded into the development domain, we certainly have found ourselves feeling sometimes um, uh, sort of fitting oddly or uncomfortably within the larger UN development system, which, you know, we sometimes feel, depending on the context and issue of the day, that, you know, is, is approaches issues with an unduly <laughs> pragmatic, <laughs> in an unduly pragmatic way or an overly pragmatic way, in a way that sort of um, risks foreclosing the ugly underbelly of development. And whereas, and I don't know whether there's anything in the, these old tropes about human rights practitioners sort of being motivated by more, sort of a more Hobbesian worldview, always looking, always seeing the dark side rather than being you know, sort of glass half, glass half full type of person. I, I'm not, I don't buy into that, uh, those, that, uh, that characterization or those distinctions in a, you know, categorical way. But I think there's something there that does sort of lead human rights um, part of the system to sort of look for those, look for the dark underbelly and look for the problems and be a little bit cautious about uh, buying into praise uh, and the triumphalism that sometimes accompanies um, you know UN reporting on global global development agenda um, so yeah it's a complex uh, firmament but we do have very good partnerships within the UN system uh, with all parts of it um, but we do find ourselves sometimes uh, sort of in tension with other parts of the system given our unapologetically you know, an apologetic advocacy mandate, human rights advocacy mandate, uh, which is not something that uh, all other parts of the system share. Mm. One of the difficulties of an audio interview is that you can't see us nodding. <laughs> oh, <right. laughs> that, that that makes a lot of sense. Right. Um, yes, uh, we feel it. We feel it uh, every day. And you you mentioned the um, that uh, you know, the that the OHCHR has been. Um, kind of expanding its role or the, you mentioned the expansion of its role into the development space. Um, so mm -hmm. in your previous um, position heading up the office's sustainable development goal section, so was that, um, was that kind of engagement um, of the office with the SDGs that um, was obviously part of um, that kind of expanding role that you were, um, that you were mentioning? Yeah, yeah, it, it was. I mean, I think the you know the office itself um, been around uh, for decades has taken different iterations, but the, uh, the since the creation of the post of the high commissioner as an office bearer uh, with uh, secretary and support, that was sort of early nineteen nineties. Since that time, well, in fact, that sort of that evolution it sort of, it took off reasonably quickly. I mean, even before I got to the office, so in in other words, in the late. 1990s or so, there were initial um, efforts in that direction under former UN Secretary General Kofi Annan's uh, mainstreaming human rights project, um, which was in 1997. The is fairly simple idea, uh, a powerful one potentially, which was to get human rights out of its ghetto and uh, into the into the mainstream of uh, other areas of the UN's work in development, peace and security, humanitarian affairs, and economic and social affairs. So the, the initial effort was driven by that, uh, by that policy uh, initiative. Uh, 
um, it was, I suppose, largely um, inward looking, I would say, uh, looking at uh, the UN's own programming uh, instruments and policies. And I think the next, the next sort of uh, phase of that effort um, sort of uh, spawned in a more organic way, in a more opportunistic way. Um, and, and a way that sort of engaged more powerful external actors. So I think by, by the early 2000s, um, uh, we were seeing more avenues to try to have an impact in global policy debates and in relationships with powerful institutions, economic institutions. Um, before the SDGs, it was really the MDGs. Uh, I, I sort of point to that, I suppose, at the moment where in the early 2000s, and, I, and that was the time when I was uh, already part of things, um, we did see both opportunities and risks from what started off as a sort of a pretty technocratic, low-key uh, initiative after the Millennium Summit in 2000 um, to, uh, to bring human rights into the sort of the mainframe of that conversation from an opportunities and risks uh, assessment uh, standpoint. Um, the SDGs um, sort of uh, obviously took off about uh, 10 years or so after that, after our focus turned to the post-2015 agenda, really about five years before the MDGs had expired. But, um, but yes, those, uh, the SDGs agenda and its precursor, the MDGs, um, uh, for a range of reasons, uh, provided us with motivation to sort of get busy in this area, try to have an impact. Can I just ask you a question about something you just said? So the idea of the opportunities and risks, what do you mean by that in terms of, do you mean the risks of trying to mainstream human rights as part of the development agenda or are you talking about something different? Uh, talking, about, um, talking about something different, um, the MDGs uh, came onto the scene uh, with a lot of fanfare with a lot of donor interest initially, which broadened out to interest of developing country governments as well, mm. and a whole range of other, you know, international organizations. And there was a lot of, yeah, a lot of fanfare about it. There was a lot of resources put behind it. And there seemed to be this overriding, this, this, this underlying assumption that uh, the MDGs was a human rights agenda writ large, and particularly an economic and social rights agenda. So for the human rights community at that time, um, it raised a lot of questions, you know, was it uh, really a human rights agenda? Did it sort of go all the way? Did it go enough of the way? Mm -hmm. uh, what were the potential pitfalls? And, uh, you know, on closer scrutiny, um, you know, I think a number of pitfalls did emerge. So that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about the risks um, that sort of motivated our engagement without doubting that for a, you know, small number of rights, uh, to so you know rights relating to access to food uh health housing and so forth there were a, certainly a, a number of issues that were being dealt with that, that we think you know could advance human rights enjoyment but not uh, necessarily with a human rights approach so that that's sort of where we came in that's how we were looking at the time and so then that that sort of um story of i guess the office becoming more involved um in, in the development agenda um, continued with the SDGs. And um, I, I've read on, on the officer's website that um, it regards itself as um, a custodian um, for some of the sustainable development goals. Um, I wondered if you could say more about um, what that idea of 
um, being a custodian for particular um, indicators um, for the goals um, means and particularly in practice what that actually means that the office is is doing to be a custodian. Sure. Yes, the, um, that's actually a question that my statistician colleagues could probably answer better than I. Um, and I should also I should emphasize I've been away from the SDGs issue for, well, for about nearly five years now. But the custodian uh, terminology is actually pretty, it's pretty you know, it's a technical meaning within the um, UN statistical division. So the, the body that sort of oversees, or the statistical commission, the body, the intergovernmental body that oversees progress towards the SDGs. And that is that we simply collect data for a number of the indicators um, within the SDGs. The, um, it's, it sounds technocratic, but of course, you know, um, you know, data is is critical in terms of informing the development, informing first of all our understanding of progress, as well as as well as uh, implementation efforts and policies needed to achieve the SDGs. The areas where we are custodian are pretty novel in terms of you know previous global development agendas, and that's in uh, in areas of goal 10 on inequalities, global inequalities, I think one of the indicators that we are responsible for concerns uh, discrimination. And goal 16, um, one of the, well, it really was a, um, a very delicate issue in the final negotiations towards this agenda was on uh, you know, getting civil and political rights into the agenda. And goal 16, which concerns peaceful societies, the, intergovernmental bodies always search for politically palatable <laughs> terminology to cover up, you know, what could be pretty challenging uh, issues. One of the indicators within Goal 16 is killings of uh, human rights defenders, trade unionists and journalists. And so, uh, so our office with UNESCO have been collecting data around that issue. And there was um, uh, an almighty struggle to get that into um, the overall set of uh, indicators for this agenda. And, um, and that was a successful effort. So that's, that's now something that, uh, you know, all countries uh, have, um, you know, have on their, it's, it's now legitimized, I should, I should say, the UN's effort to bring that issue, killings of human rights defenders, journalists and trade unions, to development conversations and assessments of progress at country level. You can imagine that's a hugely unpopular outcome for a great many countries and an increasing number of countries given the, what we're seeing now play out in, the, in terms of closing of civil society space and the oppression of human rights globally. But uh, those are two examples and there. I think, I think there might be two more where we are indeed custodian and collect the data and feed it into global assessments of progress and then try to make the most out of that in terms of um, advocacy uh, and country level programming thereafter. That's uh, so interesting. I just was not expecting you to say that the custodian question was had a statistical dimension to to the response, mm. but yeah. the the way that you're describing the relationship between the statistical um, data gathering and the feeding that back into the advocacy role um, makes me think of Andre's own thesis, actually, which is all about big data and the transformation of human rights mm. by the entry of big data into the human rights space. So mm. I'm going to be presumptuous and ask a question that um, takes us there because... So 
so how does so one one thing you've highlighted is the way that the relationship between a reporting data gathering dimension and an advocacy thing get tied together how does that manifest with respect to participation so if we think about an older form of participation i can picture a public fora where people gather and UN representatives or development bank institutions, I mean, development institutions and stuff have to participate in town halls and stuff where they listen. How has the, how has the data gathering stuff changed the quality and nature of participation, if it has? Are you, hmm. are you getting more, are you shifting to online participation and what happens with that? Yeah, that's a great, uh, it's a great question and uh, I have to confess at the outset I don't have the span of experience, certainly recently, um, to answer that question comprehensively. Um, but uh, I, would, I would note that uh, during the course of the, during the course of the post-2000 negotiations leading towards the, the new agenda, we were certainly seeing more um, sort of big data uh, efforts to, you know, being put in put in place to sort of capture perspectives of a greater range of people from, you know, a greater range of places, um, and uh, and you know, at one level, you know, one one applauds that, you know, it's saying it's a it's a critical way of broadening outreach, and um, it's it's a way that uh, can compensate for the you know the access challenges, costs of carrying out participation. Um, in person, in in sort of in, in remote and hard to reach areas, but it's um, it's also um, and of course the applications now are have got manifold and just taking off as I'm sure Andre would um, would tell us in more detail. But to give an example, just a recent example that uh, I've become aware of and was certainly fascinated by was uh, an effort to. Um, basically hoover up social media imprints of um, 35 or 40 influential figures in Kenya. This is an effort undertaken by um, a World Bank political scientist, uh, along with the um, Paul Collier's outfit in, in Oxford, the International Growth Centre. And from, from those uh, imprints to, to analyse not only the text of um, discourse that these actors were putting out there, but uh, to do a, a sentiment analytical exercise, to actually analyze the sentiment within it. So to analyze the patterns of conversation through access to these um, slightly secret sounding warehouses of information. And from that to develop a picture about the likelihood of violent conflict you know, erupting attributable to those individuals and those, uh, those sentiments. Now, that, it sounds Orwellian, at a glance, and uh, indeed, I think you know there are the, the privacy implications are potentially uh, huge. But the predictive value that's claimed by well that particular pilot initiative um, was was quite extraordinary. So with, between there was a particular time period, five and ten years or something of that sort. Uh, after a lag of about five years, an eighty percent or thereabouts predictive. Um, capacity was was claimed through that effort so it's all to say that yes beyond consultations the, the the applications of technology 
uh, in that domain as well of conflict prevention are, are very, very significant here, it would seem. But um, it's, uh, yeah, it's, I do accept, I do see that um, the, particularly in the COVID context now, where physical access challenges are, have increased to such a degree that there is a risk of uh, falling back on these, uh, these sort of the technological approaches uh, perhaps may increase over time. Um, and uh, one has to be, uh, of course, and with the cost that that involves, the lack of face-to-face -face contact, I think um, could be an increased risk beyond what we've seen in the past. I would also say is uh, maybe a larger observation, the track record of participation um, is certainly has been a very uneven one uh, when it comes to at least my own personal experience of working with UN country teams, um, with international financial institution policy making processes. Um, it always uh, the you know the, the fig leaf of participation um, can be a sort of a thin dangling one uh, rather than a, a quality of participation that really enables people to control their destinies, to control development, the vision of development that's being promulgated. That critique has been out there from the beginning and it just hasn't gone away, you know, and it's uh, often the most important decisions are those farthest removed from the input of those most intimately affected. I always remember the, the quote from um, Sunita Narayan, the Indian environmental activist talking about a participation forum organised about the Global Environment Facility. And, and she just said the way that the bank was organising participation was, you will participate in my program. <laughs> so I always hear that sentence in my ears when I'm reading about the IFIs and participation initiatives. Right, and I think there's an assumption, you know, there's the, the technocratic assumption the sort of the, the benign technocracy assumption, uh, you know, under which these issues are, are just simply too complex you know, to be grasped by the lay person, and uh, you know, of, of, of too 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 great an import uh, in terms of the macroeconomy to be um, you know to be sullied by common opinion. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's that sort of uh, kind of elitist assumption, which uh, you know often uh, also under. So, Problematic record in this area. Yeah. The um, the sentiment analysis um, example you, you pointed to it's um, it's such a fascinating one. It's um, I mean as you say it sounds quite scary in a lot of ways, but um, it seems that when they they point to their um, their track record, there's something very seductive for um, international organisations in um, this idea that the, the, the technology can allow them to predict um, kind of the outcomes of their development policies. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I, Andre, I confess I don't know enough about it. I'd like to hear you talk about it some more. <laughs> but yeah, it's, uh, it's sort of it's an example of an application of, you know, tech and big data that, you know, I think is, does warrant very close very close uh, study there. So I'm aware of a set of pilots that are following on from the Kenya example that I mentioned. Um, and uh, I think, you know, one, one does have to look at the, both the promise and potential perils uh, very closely when weighing up 
you know, whether this is a good idea and, and if so, what are the, what are the positions supporting it? Can I can can I ask Mac a question that is more of a political economic question relating to this same thing, which is about um, the players and how this changes the the players? Because I know Mac, you've always been attentive to um, economically powerful actors, in particular the IFIs. But I'm just wondering about the tech companies now and the way that this shift is introducing a whole other range of actors into the heart of the UN machinery in what seems like a qualitatively different way than before. Does, yeah. Have you noticed anything about um, the most powerful corporations of our time, in a sense, coming in through the provision of data services and whether that's, whether that's having an effect? Yeah, I haven't. Uh, I'm, I uh, understand where the question comes from. But I suppose I'm just sort of one step removed, at least, from you know where that where that is happening among the the various um, countries that's you know that we're focused on in the IFI space. Uh, Myanmar is a particularly um, pressing one at the moment, uh, and obviously a, a priority country for our office engagement uh, generally since uh, particularly since 2017, in northern Rakhine State. So it's 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 in that context where you know you see these uh, the potential um, you know, hazards of unregulated big tech uh, come into play, where of course um, the hate speech promulgated through Facebook and the very wide subscription to Facebook in that country was uh, you know among the factors that sort of fueled that created the ingredients for. Um, you know, the ethnic cleansing operations and alleged genocide. So it's, that it's, I see the issues more at that level in terms of human rights threats um, than, uh, than, than I do more in terms of the actual how those companies impact on the sort of UN data machinery itself. But it's also it's an extremely compelling case study from the perspective of the international financial institutions, which are, of course, wrestling with the, the age-old question, do I stay or do I go? Um, do we remain and be part, try to engage constructively within the space that we have um, for you know, presumptive longer-term development gains? Um, or uh, is the simple fact of engaging or engaging the way we do uh, a recipe for complicity international criminal ramifications, uh, you know, at least in theory, but of course, um, you're talking so, yeah. about the, the shall we stay or shall we go with respect to particular countries? Yes. Um, so, but can I take you back to a slightly different question about the potential for complicity and resistance and this relationship between human rights and the IFIs. Um, the most recent report by Philip Alston or the final report by Philip Alston um, talks about the World Bank measure of the ninety a day poverty line as being unrealistic and having produced complacency. And in his recent Mandela lecture, the Secretary General Antonio Guterres describes an inner, what he calls the inequality pandemic afflicting our times. Yeah. Um, and I'm just wondering whether there's a tension in these uh, reports 
which on one hand talks about the pandemic revealing an existing and growing inequality, and on the other, in Guterres's report in particular, in contrast to Philip Alston's report, I think, he talks about the pandemic causing setbacks in the progress of addressing inequality. But I um, am wondering whether your what you would say about the extent to which development orthodoxies have contributed to the production of those inequalities. So is this a... Is this a story about an interruption of an otherwise good news story or is this a story about the revelation of an underbelly, as you put it earlier, about um, certain development orthodoxies actually having contributed to the, to the rapid rise in inequality, particularly since the early 1990s? Yeah, I mean, I, I, it won't shock you to, to hear that I, I would certainly tend to the, the latter view. Um, the pandemic, I think, has uh, has revealed and continues to reveal a great deal about the uh, health um, or otherwise of our societies and about the wisdom or otherwise of the economic arrangements um, you know, that, that uh, drive particular economies in a global economy. But I think the, you know, the, uh, in the COVID terminology, there are a number of pre-existing conditions um, that really did provide the tinder for the, you know, the global ways that we see right now. And um, the, the, it's the, you know, the, the standard neoliberal economic thinking that has really dominated so much, um, so much uh, of, you know, of the economic, uh, global economic agenda since uh, at least the 19. 1980s, uh, the, the sort of the very the market fundamentalist thinking has been such a powerful driver of the economies. The, the trend against uh, regulation uh, of, uh, of business, of economic activity, um, has really, uh, you know, I think set the scene for the devastation that we see and the galloping inequalities that, that we witness so that are being increased further through the COVID pandemic, the additional vulnerability of those already um, at the margins and uh, the sort of the, the determined, <laughs> uh, the determination to um, resist regulation of corporate activity um, in the public interest, sort of, uh, with rare exceptions, beyond a very tokenistic way. So I think those are the yeah. That's at the heart. I think of the misery, and, and COVID was just uh, was just ready to take advantage of it. Um, and uh, of course, it's a it's a very dynamic picture globally. So it's not that easy to analyze. I think, but I think some of those structural underpinnings are, are pretty clear and, and well documented, and are at the heart of it. You would agree, Sundar? Yes, I I think that's right. I mean, I I'm just thinking about the way that inside the UN there's been so much contestation over those economic orthodoxies that have become so dominant and that ironically for me who takes a historical perspective the period of the Cold War offered more space for um, resistance to a very particular kind of uh, economic policy making if only because the spectre of communism seemed to offer a 
arrival to untrammeled free market capitalism. Um, but I'm just, I know that Andre has been thinking about the way that human rights um, may or may not offer a potential for resistance to that conversation. Um, yeah, I was going to follow up that, um, uh, your last comment, Mac, um, about, um, uh, about the, the kind of underlying um, uh, structures. Um, but uh, I noticed that um, you've previously written about human rights being a tool of contestation um, and, and, and as a potential tool for re-politicising development. Um, mm. And I just wondered if you could say something about um, how you see the potential for human rights to challenge that kind of um, the neoliberal economic orthodoxy uh, that you mentioned. Sure, yeah. The, um... Uh, I see, I see the role of human rights in in this context um, in a number of ways, and I think uh, I think that the very heart of it, I think the the human rights as mandating and undergirding meaningful participation is clearly, you know, at the heart of it. I think so many of the problematic policy descriptions that are you know, trotted out um, time and again. Um, sort of corresponding to the sort of the Washington Consensus uh, prescriptions um, would be very difficult to sustain if there were if if meaningful consultations, active, free, and meaningful consultations and accountable processes were in place. I think there's just so much, you know, so much of the backroom dealings, the, you know, the, the dominance of uh, finance ministries in these conversations, the planning conversations at country level in developing countries, the, you know, the democratic deficits in international organizations and the political economy of the conversations at all levels, you know, really crowd out the perspectives that needed to, you know, to effectively challenge the dominant, um, you know, the dominant ideas um, in economics that, that do still sometimes so much human misery. <laughs> I was just going to say to follow up on Andre's question and your answer and, and also in a way getting back to the comment you made about the should we stay or should we go idea. Um, do you think that human rights in an institutional sense rather than in a wider political sense um, in its search for relevance and uh, in its wish to engage with the development institutions, do you think it's given up some of its capacity to provide a, um, a language or institutional forum for resistance? Or do you think that being at the table has actually tempered some of the worst excesses of the IFIs and the misery that some of their policies, from my perspective at least, have wrought on the global south? Yeah, no, that's that's a great question. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm really conscious of the, you know, the, the critiques of David Kennedy and others um, along, along those lines. I think, um, uh, first of all, I, uh, from my own perspective, um, I've, I think one can engage in human rights terms in a way that does uh, challenge the status quo, uh, potentially effectively, 
I think it depends as much on it's a question of uh, sort of strategy as much as as much as theory. And in the IFI space, you know, the uh, the whole range of organisations from global south to global north, you know, that have been fighting that fight over the years uh, with varying degrees of success. But I would also say that um, I don't see human rights as necessarily um, the only game in town, um, mm. nor the only language or only alternative in town. And I think that uh, uh, one does see human language used in, you know, in genuinely, you know, um, social movements, uh, you know, in, in social struggles uh, for fundamental political change. But it's not, it's not the only, I don't, don't see it as being the, um, you know, the only possibility, the only source and form of emancipatory, emancipatory, um, uh, uh, of the emancipatory agenda. Mm. So, um, it's a great observation, actually. I mean, we don't, I've, in, in human rights classes, it's quite interesting how people see a struggle for human rights automatically as a proxy for the idea of political struggle. So it's really salutary to hear you, in a sense, parochialise it and say it's one of a constellation of political activities. Um, so that's really, really interesting to hear a human rights guy say that. Right, right. Well, uh, you know, to, and I, I would say that in one, one area of advocacy where I think... Um, where human rights uh, needs to be more effective is in the whole area of social rights, mm -hmm. and that's if I have a if I have a grudge, and uh, it's it's the uh, persistent um, you know myopia uh, and predilection of I think the human rights movement um, to to focus really to to perhaps overly on civil and rights to the possible the possible detriment of social rights in a way that includes an understanding of the latter rights. And when we're talking about the problems that we're talking about, which uh, concern the neoliberal uh, economic model, I think it's, it's really only a robust, full-throated assault uh, uh, on the basis of social rights that I think can possibly make a dent in some of the underlying policy prescriptions that animate that agenda. I don't accept participation, yes, must be underpinned by certain political rights, uh, freedoms association, assembly, and the like. But uh, it's only through, I think, a clearer understanding of social rights that one can go directly into the heart of some of the policy prescriptions, such as um, the ideologically driven obsession with uh, privatization um, that, that really are sort of the heart of directly at the heart of so many problems um, of the kind we're talking about. There's so many things that I would love to ask you just that flow from that about the relationship between North and South and uh, how you experience the different kinds of encounter that you have in an institutional and personal sense. But I am conscious that we um, can't keep you for much longer and that there are some little people outside your door who probably need your attention as well. So, um, Andre, unless you have another question, I think I might um, uh, thank Mac for 
being so generous in conducting this interview. I don't know if everybody knows, but um, Mac is a contributor to our teaching program as well in the Melbourne Law Masters. And so I really hope that the pandemic doesn't prevent us from having you back, Mac, to teach in person again in the MLM. Um, Andre, do you have any other questions that you want to add? Um, perhaps only a, a quick one um, uh, about your um, to sort of circle back to your role um, at the UN and um, it's just um, striking to me you've, um, you've you've had a lot of scholarly engagement and published books and, and a lot of journal articles um, while still being within the UN system um, and I just wondered if that um, you know is that something that is you know at times is, is there a tension in, in in wearing those two hats for you um, or uh, and how do you kind of um, yeah, resolve that if there is one. Yeah, that's that's a great question, and there, there certainly is. You know, there's there's, there's a, a formal answer to that question, which is you know the UN rules stipulate that uh, international civil servants um, such as myself um, are you know bound by certain norms in terms of partiality and what have you, and but that external activities um, such as publishing are encouraged, providing that they're consistent with, you know, the overriding duties as a national civil servant. That's that's fine and well, but um, there is inevitably a tension when uh, in play when one is writing about topics that one is working on in this system. And uh, there have been, uh, yeah, there have been instances where, um, yeah, you've, I've found myself approaching a research topic feeling as if I've got one hand tied behind my back, either because of, um, you know, privileged uh, information, which, you know, can't be shared, but which are really germane to the topic, um, or because uh, I just feel a need to accommodate, um, you know, optics, you know, political optics, uh, given my status as an international civil servant. And, um, yeah, I think the... There's, I think the quality of output uh, can be compromised to some extent <laughs> and one can find oneself deciding not to write about a topic simply because of the judgment that, okay, given those constraints, uh, it's just not worth my putting pen to paper on this for a public audience. And I, I guess I've, I've tried to, you know, I've tried to go for topics where I would not have to I would have to compromise um, and uh, I think uh, yeah, by the time I leave the organisation one day I think there'll be a backlog of topics that I'm probably looking to return to with, with, um, with uh, somewhat more uh, with fewer constraints, shackles and considerably more uh, vigour than I could possibly manage now. <laughs> I think that um, that meeting of the scholarly and institutional selves of MacDarrow is probably a great place to bring the recording to an end. But I should just say that that anything you've written, Mac, is really useful, and many of us still um, rely on it with great respect. So uh, I think it it's a good invitation for those of us in the scholarly arena to take up the challenge to. Um, continue speaking truth to power as it were but also that the kinds of contributions that people in your double role make are extremely important if not essential to 
that responsibility or acquitting that responsibility for us. So I'm very grateful that you do try to try to maintain a foot in each world. Um, so thank you very much for doing that as well as thank you for being interviewed by us. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity to speak and I um, really look forward to meeting you both. Uh, fingers crossed. You've been listening to the ILLA podcast. To find out more, go to soundcloud.com forward slash ILLA podcast. That's double I-L-A-H podcast.